Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Unqualified Scholar Podcast. My name is Todd. I'm here with my friend Alyssa, and we're here to talk about something I don't know anything about. The list is long, and Alyssa has the internet. So what do you got? Okay. You might know this one or figure it out, but how many ways can you make change for a dollar? How many ways can you make change for a dollar? Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's probably like some multiple thing, right? So there's uh, one pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, half dollars, five different ways, right? So 250. Ooh, close. 293. Oh, 293. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't math. So you kind of got me on the math question. Um, 293 different ways to make change for a dollar. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> have you ever seen a cashier like making change at McDonald's and trying to figure out like from the number on the screen to the change in the drawer? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was taught that you count it back, right? So if mm -hmm. it's a dollar fifty-three. You get two pennies, that's 55, two nickels, that's seven, or two dimes, that's 75, right? And then a quarter, and then you've made change. So you count it back. Right. That's the easy way. And I actually have a secret disdain for nickels. Really? Yeah, yeah. I, I hate nickels. I think that they're the bulkiest and most pointless of the coins, even more than pennies. The, I, I, most I would nickels. say pennies. No, pennies are fine because, you know, I mean, they're, they're just pennies. Nickels, I hate them. Uh, and the, the reason for this deep-seated animosity towards nickels is when I was in high school, I was actually a shift manager at a McDonald's. Um, given an incredible amount of responsibility for which I was no way prepared for, right? <clears throat> so I had to count the money at the end of the night. And when you count nickels, you can count them by put like if you have a pile of nickels, you just count them by using your fingers. One, two, three, four, five, that's 25. So you do that four times, and then you have a, a dollar. But nickels are pointless. I hate them. <laughs> so now, I mean, it's it's a non-rational hatred. Like, it's not like I go out recruiting people. Like, you should hate nickels, right. too, because they're the worst things in the world. Although that would probably be a, a good topic for a podcast, things I hate and why. Um, because none <laughs> of the reasons are actually good reasons. I hate fish. So yeah. The reason is stupid. I hate nickels because they're just inconvenient. So. Now I know that you can make change 293 ways for a dollar. 293. Yep. So what was your guess? Did you did you have a guess when you initially saw that or did you No, so I find facts and then I turn the facts into a question. Oh, you turn the fact into a question. All right. That's yeah. <laughs> At least we're not on the Bigfoot kick anymore. That's true. Yeah. So he's popping up everywhere. That's not his thing though. He's the hidden guy. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's another whole can of worms, right? <clears throat> um, yeah, because... I mean, your wife just finished a Bigfoot puzzle, right? She did, yeah. This Bigfoot puzzle haunted my living room for um, an inordinate amount of time. She, she likes to do puzzles. And my son got her this puzzle. And the unique thing about this puzzle is that it didn't, it didn't have regular edge pieces. So mm -hmm. all of the edge pieces were like fur that just kind of... Like they weren't fur, but they were cardboard that looked like fur launching out into the distance and so it was really hard so she worked on this puzzle for a month and i 
I tried not to get salty about it, <laughs> but it, it dominated like our whole, our kid, our dining room tables where, where we do a lot of our, I don't know, family stuff. So yeah. Sasquatch was part of the family for a while. <laughs> so uh, something I know a little bit about um, is biblical studies. And we've been going through the book of Romans. Um, I don't, um, I don't know, like with Romans, there's this, there's always this issue of pace, right? So mm -hmm. you could theoretically preach Romans in five sermons, okay? Because there are five major sections. The problem with doing it that quickly though, is you're going to miss some details. You're not going to mm -hmm. get, you're not going to be able to get into the weeds and talk about um, some things that are actually kind of important. The other option would be to go through it in like one chapter each week. But some of the chapters really do need um, <clears throat> two weeks to cover them because chapter divisions were added much after, much later after everything was written. And um, right. so it, it just becomes um, like a little artificial. Uh, but we're in the section of Romans where things have changed a little bit. And let me remind uh, you of, of the outline of Romans. Romans starts by talking about sin. Okay, sin is bad. And it starts with the obvious sinner. And we had to create a character for this. I got a little stuffed animal who is kind of bluish green. And I gave him mm -hmm. a goatee, a black goatee and some angry eyebrows. And he's Mr. Schmutzig. He's the guy who um, he's just characterized by sin. So he's he's almost he's almost a false picture. Right. But we all know people who just if there's a, a choice to sin, they're just going to run to it. They just are going to go do bad things. Um and it's not that they're irredeemable. It's just that, you know, maybe habits or conditioning or the family they grew up in, they just, they go towards bad things. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and so Paul starts by describing this person as someone who's always running after uh, the opportunity to sin. And what he's doing is he's getting all of the, you know, quote unquote, good people to kind of go, yeah, that guy's bad. And so... Maybe he's magnifying the character a little bit. Maybe he's kind of uh, pulling from a lot of different areas to create this character so that all the good people are going, yeah, that guy's bad. And then he starts talking about the moral man. He talks about how, um, <clears throat> like he talks about people who follow rules. And mm -hmm. following rules, like we would all acknowledge that that's a good thing. But the way that Paul describes this person is someone who judges you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so what Paul is doing is he's calling out the inconsistency in people who are very rules oriented. Now, rules are good. Mm -hmm. Rules are fine. Um, but everybody breaks a rule every now and then. Right. Do you speed? Hmm. Just a little. Okay. So if, if you're not able to see Alyssa's face. She's grinning like a, like, like she just got <laughs> caught by the cops. Um, <clears throat> we, we all do those kind of things. And sometimes it's either intentional or unintentional things. We don't really think about um, things we don't care about. So the moral man kind of gets called out for not always following the rules. And if we're dealing with um, trying to get right with God, you'd have to follow all the rules all the time. And there's some, I know some people who are just, they're very good rule followers. My wife is one of them. Mm -hmm. She follows the rules, but she speeds. I mean, that's just, that's who she is. <laughs> so, 
So Paul calls out the rule person, and he says, look, you're not following the rules well enough to equal perfection. And so the final person he's going to call out is the religious person. And he uses kind of his own, well, not kind of his own, he uses his own people. He talks to the Jewish people, and he says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And in my mind, like, imagine being a person in the first century reading this for the first time. Paul gets mm-hmm. you nodding along at Mr. Schmutzig, the obviously bad person. You're like, oh, yeah, that guy's bad. And then you're kind of like, okay, I can see the rules guy being a little inconsistent and not earning a relationship with God. But if you're a Jewish person and you grew up with the law, believing that you actually were these things, and then Paul calls you out, you'd be like, bro. Or, or what is it the kids say? Bruh. 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 Okay. Bruh. I, it sounds so weird. <laughs> but what Paul's trying to say is, look, all of these things, okay, sin is bad. We all know that. Following the rules is not going to get you into a right relationship with God. It's just going to make you a good rule follower. And even then, you're not going to be consistent. And even if you perform all of the rituals perfectly from the law, that's not really the point of the law. The law was always intended to bring people into a relationship with God through Jesus. And so Paul gets to this in Romans 3.21. And some of the things that happens here, so that's the first section. The first section is the sin section. Paul says everybody has a sin problem. Everybody needs Jesus. And so when he gets to 3.21, it's it's kind of like we like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Because it's pretty straightforward, right? Believe in Jesus, and you're good. In Romans, Paul's going to use some technical terms. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Um, For all who believe. No, hang on. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, here's kind of the thing about Romans 3, 21 to 26. It doesn't really hit your, it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well as John three sixteen, right? But inside this set of ideas, um, you know, you think about righteousness. And righteousness is a right standing before God. And that is a really, really big idea. So this word righteousness, like, it's, it's kind of a technical word, right? It's, it's, it's narrowly uh-huh. focused on a right standing before God. And then you go on to the word justified. Now... It's the same word, okay? Justified is the verb. Righteousness is a noun. So you are declared legally righteous is the meaning of justified in verse 24. And 
this, you know, the ideas here are, are really super concentrated, right? Because that's why that's why you would use a technical term. When you go to your auto mechanic and he says you need a left front wheel bearing hub, he's identifying something mm -hmm. very specific. It's specific to the side and the wheel and all those kind of things. Paul's using these specific words on purpose to communicate to his religious audience, his Jewish and Gentile audience, that what you need is something specific in your relationship to God. It's not just belief, right? And that's one of the yeah. things that um, I think in our in our modern culture, we have sort of um, diluted faith down to just belief. Right? And the specifics of what you believe don't really matter. Just be a good person, follow mm -hmm. the rules, just believe. But what Paul's saying here is believe specifically in Jesus, God's gift to you. And <clears throat> these words justified, so justification is a, de a declaration of legal righteousness. It's almost like a court scene where you go before the judge okay. and the judge says you're guilty. Okay, And the classic example is when the judge comes down and pays your penalty for you. That's what Jesus did for us. He also uses the word redemption. Redemption means to be purchased out of the slave market. So people are viewed as enslaved to sin. You're purchased from the slave market to be set free. Okay, big, big pictures here, right? And then he uses the word mm -hmm. propitiation. Now, there's a, a couple different ways this is translated. Um, propitiation is one of those fancy $5 religious words, right? Have you been propitiated today? Well, I don't even know. I have no idea. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the, the NIV translates it as a sacrifice. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And so the word that's used here in the Greek is hilasterion, and that refers back to the, the mercy seat in the temple where the blood was sprinkled for the atonement and removal of sins. So Jewish people would hear Hilasterion and have this instant connection to everything that had been going on before in the temple, okay? And with the Day of Atonement specifically, so that they understood that what Jesus did was acting as a high priest, he went into the presence of God and mediated for everyone who believes in him, went for them on their behalf, and he's also the substitute, the sacrifice. So Jesus took his own blood into that location and paid for the sins of all who believe in him. So Romans okay. 3.21, like this is a really condensed, power-packed passage that a lot of people just kind of like they read through it and they go, okay, uh, I asked Jesus into my heart. I'm good. Okay. That, mm -hmm. that works for kids, but we need to like, as adults, we need to understand these ideas a little bit more so that we're looking at the picture correctly. Um, I would hate for someone to never mature enough in their faith that they knew what they got, didn't know what the gospel was. Right. So, and this is, this mm -hmm. is the gospel. This is ground zero here. Because what Paul is trying to do is he's taking us from sin to salvation, from uh, enslaved to a hostile power to freed to serve God. And that's where, okay, so Romans 3.21 just goes through that. Romans chapter 4 says, not by works. Okay, um, Because Paul is really, really um, keyed in on helping people understand that it's not by what you do that earns you a relationship to God. It's by God's gift 
of his son, Jesus. And so, you know, Romans okay. 4 says, you know, not by works. Romans 5 is going to start talking about identity. And the identity that we have as a Christian is actually super, super important. Because if you, if you walk around thinking of yourself as, like if you go back to Romans 3 or Romans 1, um, <clears throat> 119, where it ta talks about the wrath of God revealed against sin, if you live there, you have not appropriated and understood the blessings of salvation that God has poured out on you. And those blessings are this. I mean, I, Romans 5.1, I think, is um, like, this is one that should be committed to memory. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, declared legally righteous by trusting in Jesus, we have peace with God. And like that for me is like a full stop. I'm like, I just want to sit there for a minute and realize that even though there might be things in my life that are not going well, even though I may have committed some sin or done something wrong, I still have peace with God. It is something objective. It is something that the text of Scripture reminds me of. Um, <clears throat> and I can just sit there for a minute. So when I'm having a bad day, okay? Um, right. When I'm criticized fairly or unfairly, right? I go back to, okay, I've got peace with God. And so that, you know, I think we have a lot of, like, anxiety is really kind of going full bore in our society right now for a lot of different reasons. And I think one of the mm -hmm. reasons is we're counting on our internal sense of identity and not comparing that with something external to us. So whenever I think about my internal stuff, I get caught up in all of the different emotions and feelings and even the chemistry of what's going on right in my life. So I'm an old man. <clears throat> That's a technical, you don't have to, don't disagree too hard there, Alyssa. I'm an old man, right? <laughs> Older than me, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm an older guy, and I'm starting to experience some of the problems of old age. All right? How do we deal with that? Well, if I look internally, I'll be like, man, I'm not the, I'm not the man that I was before. That's a big thing for men. Mm -hmm. um, but if I look externally, I come back to the text of Scripture, and I listen for uh, some of the ways that it describes respecting your elders, right? Leviticus talks about uh, right. you shall rise up before the hoary head, you know, you shall honor the aged. And it's like, oh, yeah, so that was my responsibility when I was younger was to honor people older than me. And now I get to be the old guy. It's not a bad gig, I guess. But when <laughs> it comes to identity, looking inside can lead you in a number of different and deceptive ways. But when you look in at something objective, it gives you some ground to come back on. And I think that's one, one of the things that society needs is to remember these things from Scripture. So Romans 5 to 8 talks about identity, present identity and future identity. So we have peace with God. We go all the way to Romans 8. And Romans 8, 1, which I'm going to... Pull up, that's 9. 8 1 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank God. Um, <clears throat> and so Romans 8 is going to also go and talk about future tense things, things that are true of us in the future. And so that's the end of the transformation or sanctification section. So Romans 1 through 3 deals with sin. Romans 4 through uh, uh Romans 3 through 5, you know, right at the beginning of 5 deals with uh, salvation. So sin, salvation. The third word could either be sanctification or transformation, depending on your bent. Um, and then we're entering into a new section 
And the big theme, um, I, don't, I don't really like this word. The word is sovereignty. Um, and really, it's about God's control over the process of salvation. Because at this point, the Jewish people who have been steeped in their history and in their uh, identity as God's chosen people, they're being told now, Gentiles, people you have been conditioned to avoid and even hate and who hate you, now they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul has to answer this question, like, how, how does that work, Paul? And so he's, he's already said, not by works, not by following rules of the law. And now in this section, he's going to talk about not by birthright. You don't get into a right relationship with God because you're born into the right family. Right. Um, and so Romans 9.1 says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so there's a thing that I, like, in, in developing the sermon, some of the Jews had a mistaken perception of the Messiah, that he was supposed to come to the people of Israel and solve their problems, right? Right. Whether they felt that political problems or religious problems or temple worship problems were the primary root cause, Messiah was going to come and fix those problems. But the Messiah was always intended to come through them, not just to them. And so that's what they kind of missed, and Paul's going to correct that. And he, he points out um, <clears throat> that not all of Abraham's children are children of promise. Now, here's my one Bible trivia question. Okay, so okay. I, don't, I don't do a lot of Bible trivia, right? I, I have a computer. I have a bunch of Bible programs. I look stuff up. That's me. Um, but my one Bible program or my Bible trivia question is this: How many sons does Abraham have, as listed in Scripture? Thirteen. Thirteen. Are you guessing, or do you know something I don't know? Right, because Abraham has the twelve sons, and then he also has Ishmael that got sent out. Or am I thinking of the wrong person? Yeah, you're thinking of Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons. Jacob's name got changed to Israel. Okay. We're going all the way back to Abraham. So, so two. Two. Okay, two. Good. That is a really good guess, but it's wrong. Okay. Eight. Okay, Genesis 25.1. This is my one Bible trivia question. Abraham had a second wife whose name was Keturah, and Keturah had six sons. Zimran, Joktan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And the okay. reason that I have committed this to memory in my brain, I used to teach Old Testament, and I had a little dog, and I named my dog Keturah, Abraham's second wife, right? And she was a little female Jack Russell Terrier mixed with a Patterdale Terrier. She was a beautiful dog. Um, super smart, super active, um, and I called her Kitty, right? 
Katora <laughs> Kitty. The dog named Kitty. A dog named Kitty. She actually murdered a cat one time, but that's the story for a different day. <laughs> <clears throat> so. Hey, I was close with my first guess. You were close. Yeah, you it was a good guess. And you were thinking in the right in the right book of the Bible. So you get credit there. But none of those sons were children of promise, right? Because what God said to Abraham is your wife Sarah will have a son. And so that okay. brings up and this is the context of Romans 9 because there would have been there were actually ancient marriage contracts where um, producing a male heir was a requirement of the marriage contract. So husband marries wife in the marriage agreement between the two families. The production of a male heir is included in that. <clears throat> now, infertility has always been a thing. And one of the ways that you would solve infertility in the ancient world is if the wife cannot produce a male heir, she can provide a servant or slave girl who will take her place. So right. now the child is legally, because the, the mother of the child would be a slave, um, the child is legally the child of the wife, right? Ancient contracts, this is kind of how things worked. So when um, Abraham took Sarah as a wife, we don't know if he had this kind of contract, but Sarah comes up with a plan, hey, take my servant girl, have a, girl, have a child with her, and that will be the male offspring that we have always hoped for. Um, right. Abraham agrees. Um, his The servant girl, Hagar, has a son. His name is Ishmael. But he's not the child of promise either. Even though he is legally the child of Abraham and Sarah, he is not biologically the child of Abraham and Sarah, and he is not the promised right. son that God is, is concerned with. That son is Isaac. And so... You know, when we think about like birthright and descent, it's not because you were born from one of the children of Abraham. It's because God made a promise that there would be an offspring through Abraham and Sarah that would be the chosen people because these chosen people lead to Jesus. Right. And so then you get into Isaac. Mm -hmm. And this is all still this is Romans nine. Um, <clears throat> uh, when Rebecca. So Isaac gets a wife, Rebecca, and Rebecca conceives twins. So same mom and dad, same time. They live in the same womb, um, womb, room, get it? Anyway, <laughs> so it, it all, it's all the same, right? But Jacob is the chosen son, and Esau is not the chosen son. And so when Genesis, or when Romans 9.13 says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, it's kind of an ancient Eastern way of saying this was the chosen generation. This was the chosen person. And this was the non-chosen person. And we have to think about in biblical studies, there's this idea called corporate personality, where your offspring can take on your name as their family name. So Israel, okay. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. The Israelites are the children, the offspring of the person Israel. Same thing's true for Esau, okay, his brother Esau also called Edom. He is the family head of the Edomites. Canaan is the father of the Canaanites. And so when you refer back to somebody using their like family name, that's what's happening here in Romans 9. So Jacob I loved is talking about how Israel was the favored nation of God 
And Esau, I hated, is really talking about the nation of Edom who was not the, the family that produced the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So then um, <clears throat> it gets into uh, what about Pharaoh? Okay. And if you remember, Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, um, he is the kind of guy who is never going to let the people of Israel go. He never was. Right. And the text talks about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But Pharaoh is not like this regular guy. He's been raised up in the household of the Egyptian king. Um, He believes that he is not just a king, but he's also a god, small g god. Right. Egyptians have lots of gods. Pharaoh's one of them. And there was this huge amount of theater that Egypt would put on to um, promote the idea of Pharaoh as God. Because how else are you going to control a bunch of slaves and you want to have pyramids built for you? You convince them that you're a god, right? That you have all this power, whether (laughs) you have it or not. So they would even stage, um, like they would have a lake and they would stage the Pharaoh going into this lake and killing the sea monsters, which were crocodiles and hippopotamuses. So it's like, it's all theater, right? Everybody's around the lake. Oh, bow down. He's a god. Um, So when you get to the book of Exodus, you have Moses who goes to the Pharaoh and he says, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, I didn't say that. Who are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the one true God. We're talking about not you. And Pharaoh's like, why would you talk about not me? Right? And so God uses these 10 plagues to humble Pharaoh, right? And really to establish Uh to all of the people who saw all of this happen, that Israel's God is the one true God. And it's convincing for a number of people at the time because when the Israelites left the land of Egypt, there was a mixed multitude that went with them. So there were probably, like, we don't know what the content of the mixed multitude is, right? But you kind of read between the lines a little bit, there were probably some Egyptians who left with the Israelites because they recognized the power of God. Mm -hmm. So what would it take? So the text says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So some people, some theologies look at this and say, well, see, God made him in eternity past to not believe the gospel, to not submit to the revelation that he had. And I have a little bit of a problem with that because I think Pharaoh could have changed his mind and become a follower of Yahweh, the one true God. But what would yeah. it have cost him? Yeah. He would have had to give up all of his power, all of his position, all of his specialness, and and do that. And so I think the bar was pretty high, but when you think about God sent Moses to him, Moses who grew up in Pharaoh's household, they might have known each other. Um, I think it's been someone has either... Um, I haven't seen this in academic literature so much, but, you know, were they brothers or half-brothers or brothers of some kind? Movies. Yeah. The the movies, movies, they're always brothers. Yeah. In the movies, they're brothers. And I don't remember the basis for that. So I'm not saying they aren't. Okay. That's a pretty high bar, right? To have one of your family members come and say, hey, by the way, we're going to go out in in the wilderness and worship the one true God. God wants you to let the people go. Probably a good idea. That's a pretty high bar. Moses didn't come to you, did he? Moses Mm -hmm. didn't show up to me and preach the gospel to me. Um, 
So I think that, you know, he had an opportunity, but his culture and his personality, um, <clears throat> he just, he chose not to. And so Romans 9 is kind of a ground for two different kinds of theology. One of them is called individual election to salvation, um, where God picks individuals to be saved or not be saved. And the other is called corporate election, where God chooses the means of salvation, the way that someone comes into the community of the elect. And I'm a corporate election guy, right? I think that the gospel, the message that we talked about in Romans 3, is open to everyone who believes. That's kind of the, as I read scripture, that's the tenor and tone of it. John 3.16, Romans 3.21, everyone who believes gets, a, gets in. And so I think um, the, the, the individual election people say, yeah, if they're chosen, they get in. And I say, no, if they choose to get in, like if people, if people choose to believe the gospel, they get in. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and that avoids a number of theological problems, right? If God picks some for heaven and some for hell, then how do we excuse God's, how do we define God's goodness, right? And right. a lot of people will just say, well, it says right there in the text, he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens who he wills. And you're not supposed to ask any questions because you're just, the, you're the clay, you're not the potter. But I think they're forgetting that God has the right to allow people to believe the gospel and that be the means of entry into the community of faith. And that community mm-hmm. of faith is called the elect or God's chosen people. So like the summary of all this is when we get to this point, it's not by birthright. It's not because you are born into a certain family that you get access into a right relationship to God. It's only by coming to Jesus and everybody can do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where for the Jewish people at the time of Paul, when they read this, they're like, whoa, everybody, all these Gentiles are allowed in. Yeah, all these Gentiles that you've been conditioned to avoid and um, look down on and look at as second-class people, um, racism isn't new in the world around us. It's always been around. And it's sometimes even between people of very similar ethnic origins. Where are your ancestors from? No idea. No idea? I hate those people. Yeah. No, I am. Those I mean, people. my brother did a ancestry DNA test a couple years ago, and I mean, it's Europe-ish kind of thing. You look kind of European, in in, in yeah. the general way that I look kind of European, right? Right. Um, and so it's like, like that's that's true of Americans, right? We've kind of lost that. But you go back a hundred years, and you have Irish people and German people who hate each other because of their ethnic ancestry. Well, Irish right. people and German people are, they're white people. They're the same mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. Um, so racism hasn't even been, like we haven't completely eliminated it between black people and white people. But a hundred years ago, there was a lot of white people who didn't like other white people. And so it's mm-hmm. just like the idea of race being a problem is an ancient idea. People have, they find whatever reason that you're different from them and hate you for it. And now Paul says, if you believe the gospel, then you can become brothers and sisters in Christ with people that you don't like. And that's that's groundbreaking, earth-shaking stuff in the first century. And Mm -hmm. so Paul is trying to help these people understand that it's by grace, not by race, 
that you get into a right relationship to God. And um, <clears throat> I use the analogy on Sunday of the idea of a team, and I use the Lions. Now, this, this is a stretch for me. I actually had to ask your <laughs> husband some sports questions because I wasn't sure. Um, the whole team made it to the playoff game, the championship game. Yep. The whole team made it, even the guys on the injured reserve who didn't play. Mm-hmm. They all made it because that's how a team works. And how do you get on the Lions? How would, if you wanted to be, you know, on the Lions, what would you have to do? You'd have to bulk One, up. One, I'd have to actually play football. You'd have to play football. You'd have to bulk up. You'd have to start working. I'd need a time machine, go back in time, get my legs lengthened. I mean, there's all kinds of things that would have to happen right. for me to even be close to playing on the Lions. Uh, probably wouldn't hurt if you had contacts inside the Ford family, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I use the illustration of Matthew Stafford's kids, all girls. Um, they don't inherit a position on the team. That's not the right. way that the Lions work. And that's not the way that Jesus works either. You get on Jesus's team by trusting him. And that's true for people that you don't like. I mean, you're a pretty likable person. You like a lot of people. Um, you find you find ways to like people, but you're that nice, yeah. right? I'm not that nice. You're my, you're way nicer than I am. Um, <laughs> even people that you don't like can get on the team by trusting in Jesus, and mm -hmm. that's a revolutionary idea even now, because what happens in the modern church is we get comfortable with people who look like yep. us, who people who are Christians like us, um, mm -hmm. and we get very uncomfortable with people who. Maybe don't follow the rules we do or who struggle with different sins than us. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the things. So I was part of a church way, way back a long time ago. <laughs> the very distant past or whatever uh, to obscure <laughs> names have been changed to protect the guilty. Um, there were people who smoked weed. Mm -hmm. And grew like one of my parishioners took me out behind his house and showed me his 12 plants. And then he showed me his harvest, which was a five gallon bucket, three quarters full of marijuana buds. And I'm just like, okay. I, I mean, I've never used it. I never planned to use it, but is he still a Christian? Can he still come to right. church? You know? All right. Our, our denominational discipline is um, almost frustratingly unspecific about marijuana, in my opinion, <laughs> although other people would have a different opinion, I'm sure. Um, who are we open to? Who are your Gentiles, right? Who okay. are the people that you would struggle if they came to church and started, started attending regularly? started, um, you know, wanted to become members, wanted to take action in the church. Um, we have a great structure at Shoreline that um, prevents, um, it, it prevents a lot of problems because we're not overly democratic, okay? Mm -hmm. So there can't be a faction that comes together to make changes. Right. Um, <clears throat> and that's good. That's healthy because we need to be outreach oriented and focused on the future where the Christians of your kids' generation, they're going to be different. 
They might have um, the guy that hired me at Pathway. He had bolts in his face. He had like, uh, what is what is this called when you have a uh, ring ring? Eyebrow piercing. An eyebrow piercing. Yeah, he didn't, had an eyebrow piercing and tattoos down to his uh, wrists. And I'm like, you guys are my people. You're all right. <laughs> and and it's you know there's some things we shouldn't get too hung up on on when it comes mm-hmm. to to the faith. And yet we do, right? Yeah. Definitely. I observed a. Uh, this is just a funny. I observed um, someone on Facebook getting called out for not going to church. Not here, not at Shoreline for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just like, wow! It was it was a it was a snarky comment on Facebook. And it was like, wow, that's that's pretty rough. So <laughs> I just am glad when people are there. Right. Yeah. I look forward to it. I love seeing you there. I love seeing your husband. Um, love your kids. Like if nothing else, <laughs> drop your kids off because they're my little buddies. Um, but be careful. I think we as a society need to be careful because we all have Gentiles. And what mm-hmm. Paul is saying here is that the gospel is open for everybody. And I think that's really, really a key idea. So that's pretty much all I've got for today. Okay. Um, 293 ways to make change for a dollar. How many yep. ways can you make change for a half dollar? Oh, I stumped I you. I don't know. You didn't look that one up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm trying to divide 293 in half, and that doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> That's probably some weird number. <laughs>